Welcome to Grace this weekend. Glad we could all be together. And I want to let you know Pastor Jeff and uh, Pastor Joe are still in Brazil. They are not at the Olympics, but they are uh, working and serving some churches and church leaders down there. And uh, I recognize Pastor Jeff has been gone a lot this summer. He's been all over the place speaking and leading conferences and teaching and consulting other church leaders. And I know he loves that. And he loves being able to serve kind of the broader kingdom of God and the broader church. I also know that he misses us and wishes he could be back here. He's excited to be back here soon. And I know we miss him. And I think it would be a great time for us to go ahead and communicate that we miss him, right? So here's a fun way we could do that. I'd love it if we all sent Jeff a little message on Facebook or Twitter, and we said, hey, we miss you, Jeff. Can't wait to see you. And if you really want to go big, snap a selfie, grab some friends, and shoot it to him, right? Because nothing makes you feel more loved than a thousand selfies, okay? So let's do that and uh, tell Jeff we miss him, and I know we're going to see him again uh, soon. So we've been in this series over the last couple weeks now called Choose Your Own Adventure. And uh, this series is all about choices, right? The decisions that we make in life. And you may or may not remember that that little book series, Choose Your Own Adventure books, and how they were designed where you'd read a little bit of the book and then you'd come to a crossroads in the book and you had to make a decision, right? Am I going to make this choice or make this choice? And it would shoot you to a different part of the book, and you would kind of shape and form your own adventures you read through the book. It's kind of cool. And we said life is a lot like that. Uh, the reality is that, that God does not dictate our choices, our decisions for us. We get to make them. And as we make choices, our, we kind of form our, our own little adventure. Of course, God's plan is unfolding all around us, but we get to have a real part in it. And we said that we know that that there's a real connection between the choices we make and the adventures that we take. And we wanted to watch that connection. And we wanted to see how do we choose the adventures in life that lead to more impact and more meaning. And uh, really an adventure that's going to lead us closer to God and to the purpose that we're designed for. So over the last handful of weeks, we've started to look at those kind of those connections between choices and the adventures. And we looked at money the first week, and uh, we also last weekend looked at convictions, kind of our beliefs and what happens when we hold to those beliefs and how should we do that, sometimes in a world that disagrees with our beliefs. So if you missed either of those conversations, I would encourage you to catch up online. Uh, you can do that at graceohio.org or just download our app. Again, just type in Grace Ohio. You can download it and you can catch uh, those messages or any others for free. And uh, I think you'll be glad that you did that. Today, what we want to do is we want to take a look at the role that courage plays in our decision making, right? The role of courage, specifically as it relates to our comfort, right? So, so often those two are kind of pitted against each other, courage and comfort. And we said, when I'm at a crossroads and I have to make a difficult decision, the role of courage is going to make a huge deal in my decision making, right? If it's going to press me into things that are often difficult, but often important and good for me and for the people around me. And what we're going to do, we're going to spend all of our time together today in looking at a guy from the Old Testament, We're going to kind of investigate his life, and he's going to make some critical decisions, and he's going to face a crossroads where he has to choose between comfort and courage. I think you'll be fascinated by his story. It's a guy named Nehemiah from the Old Testament. That's where his story is captured. I'll go ahead and have you turn there to the book of Nehemiah. It's one of the books of the Old Testament, 
And if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, you can actually grab one from underneath the chairs there. They're right in front of you. And uh, you can open up to page 333 in those Bibles or just open up the app and you can follow along in the app as well. So as you're turning there, Nehemiah chapter 1, let, let me go ahead and give us kind of a high-level background to what's going on because I realize many of us would not be familiar with this story as it's kind of buried in the Old Testament narrative, the Old Testament story. And here's what's going on in, kind of in and around Nehemiah. So what's happened is uh, thousands, probably about a thousand years before Nehemiah, Moses would have led the people of Israel and as Moses led the people of Israel into a land, the land of Canaan, the land of where the Israelites would land, he warned them and he said, God wants you to understand that if you don't follow God, if you're not faithful to God, God is going to scatter you all over the planet. Right? He's going to allow you to be, to be scattered or dispersed all over the place. And so that the Israelites eventually would have that happen to them. They would be dispersed and taken from this land that God had given them, and they would be spread out all over the world. And they would be overseen by foreign emperors and foreign governments. And at the time that Nehemiah is alive, they're under the leadership of the Persian government. And the king who's going to be leading them is King Artaxerxes. And the Jews, the Israelites, are spread all over the place. And some of them have begun to return back home and they're trying to rebuild this land, this city of Jerusalem that God has given them because now it's all in ruins because these foreign armies have come through and invaded and raided their city and broken down their walls and the gates of the city and everything has been destroyed. And you have to almost get, your, get yourself in the mindset of the ancient world. Here's how it worked. Uh, I've actually seen this in Jerusalem. It's pretty fascinating Jerusalem was surrounded by these huge stone walls, and this is how most ancient cities would be, because foreign invasions, they could literally just run you over if you didn't have these huge stone walls to protect your city. They needed gates as protection. It's kind of hard for us to imagine that that's how you would protect yourself, but that's how it was set up, and these walls have been broken down and destroyed And Nehemiah begins to hear about this. And Nehemiah is in a very interesting place. So he is going to be a servant to King Artaxerxes. He's been one of the guys that's been captured by this kingdom of Persia. And now he has a very specific role in the kingdom of Persia. He's going to be, we see this in the last verse of chapter 1. He says, I was cupbearer to the king. I was cupbearer to the king. Now let me break down what a cupbearer is. So the on-paper job description of a cupbearer played out like this. Your job as a cupbearer was to uh, drink the wine or the beverages and eat the food that the king was about to eat. You would taste it first to make sure that an enemy wasn't going to poison and try to make an assassination through poisoning their food or through their drink. So the cupbearer would taste the wine, taste the food, and make sure that the king doesn't get attacked and poisoned you're like, sweet job, right? Who wants to be the cupbearer? But let me tell you, the role would evolve. It's actually pretty fascinating. So at first glance, the, the role of the cupbearer sounds a little rough. Like, I don't want to die just for this, this person, right? And, and kind of intercept their poison. But what would happen is their, their role would change and evolve over time. Because the cupbearer would always be in the presence of the king. They're there at every meal. 
Right? They're risking their lives on a daily basis, at least hypothetically, to, to take care of the king. And what would happen is eventually the cupbearer would build a staff and they would almost have cupbearers to the cupbearer, right? So layers of protection to make sure they don't die. And the cupbearer would form a special relationship with the king. Actually, ancient research would say the cupbearer would have kind of second most influential place in the king's life, second only to the queen. And they would almost become a royal advisor to the king. And and this is the role that Nehemiah would have. He would have unbelievable access to government officials. He would have really a life of, in some ways, a life of luxury and live in all kinds of uh, freedom to be able to interact with the king, be exposed to political affairs. And if you're doing some research, most cupbearers, if they were crooked, they would use this influence actually to take a bribe and put people in government officials, kind of in positions and officials, and they would take a kickback from it, and they would try to make money that way. So if you can imagine Nehemiah, he has back at his home country in Jerusalem, there's ruins, it's destroyed, the, the gates and the walls have been destroyed and tore down. He is living in relative luxury and in relative comfort. We could say it this way. We could say Nehemiah was in his comfort zone. You know, here's this guy. He's pretty happy. And uh, he's in his comfort zone. Life is pretty good. Were there some complaints and some problems? Could things get a little bit better? Sure. But overall, Nehemiah was in a pretty comfortable place, right? He had, he had influence across political lines. He had access to the king. He would have had all of his meals come through and he'd have a place to lay his head. In general, Nehemiah was in a pretty comfortable place. Now, here's what he does. He does something fascinating. In the midst of his fairly comfortable life, he makes a decision to to do something critical. Here's what he does. Put it in your notes this way. He makes a decision to stop and to see the neglect. To stop and to see the neglect. Let me jot that down in your notes and I'll show you what we mean here in a minute when we look at this verse. He makes a decision to stop and to see the neglect. He's going to kind of open his eyes and open his ears to what's happening back in his home country, back in Jerusalem, and he's going to have an openness to hearing about what happens. Look at how this plays out. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. Hananiah One of my brothers came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and are in disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. So as people went back to Jerusalem, this is the Jewish remnant that had returned back home. Hananiah is going to come and share with Nehemiah, his brother, and say, hey, I want you to know our people are, are suffering, right? They're in a bad place. The walls are broken down in Jerusalem. Things are in bad shape, right? There's disgrace, and there is neglect. These poor people are neglected, right? They're in a bad place. And Nehemiah is going to stop, and he's going to take note of that. I told you guys a few, uh, uh, probably a, a few times ago that we were together, I, I moved in the last year, and before I moved, man, I had this enormous wood pile. I mean, it was beautiful. 
like glorious. It was humongous, you know, because I, I like to heat my house with wood, and I like wood, and I like to stack wood, and it's just a beautiful thing. It was just rows and rows of glorious wood, you know, and then we moved, and I'll be honest, I took some of that wood pile with me, you know, I, I did. I made a couple extra trips and got as much as I could, but then we moved, and we had house repairs to make, and I had a plumbing issue, and I've been wrestling with IV and all kinds of stuff, you know, and my wood pile after last winter it's disgraceful. I mean, it is shameful. If you came to my house, I would be like, don't even look at it. <laughs> it's so sad right now. I'm not even excited to show anyone, right? It, it's been neglected. My poor wood pile's in shambles, man, and I have a longing to rebuild it to its former glory. One day that'll happen. It's going to be beautiful. <laughs> it's going to be wonderful, right? But I, I got to stop, and I, I got to see the neglect, and this is what Nehemiah is doing. He's stopping and he's in the midst of his comfort zone. He's in a comfortable place. Life's good. No major problems. But he stops and he takes a look back at his people and he sees the, the neglect and the pain that they're in. And I think this is how it plays out for us. You know, I think we can put ourselves in Nehemiah's shoes because, right, most of us are fairly comfortable. I am. I, I eat food every day, and I, I sleep indoors, and right, I have most of my needs met. Could things get better? Of course. But I'm a lot like Nehemiah. Well, what would happen if we would stop and see the neglect? Not, not just in, in ruins and physical breakdown of walls, but in people's lives. Because right? there's neglect all around us we were to stop and take a look at the neglect in our schools, per se, you know, as I'm going back to school and re-engaging our classmates, there, there's always going to be that kid or that handful of kids that nobody connects with, you know, that they're kind of off in, in no man's land and, and they have a hard time connecting socially and if we were honest, we could look at them and say, I know that they need a friend, they need someone to reach out to them and be with them and connect with them. They're neglected. If we think of our coworkers, think of what plays out at work. There's always somebody who's struggling in some way. Somebody whose marriage is melting down or they're barely holding on and they're neglected and they need somebody to help tie into their lives and right, can I stop and I see the neglect there? There's always going to be that neighbor where we, we know there's tension in their family and things are breaking down and can I stop and can I see that neglect and, and take a look at it? And this weekend we're, we're talking about our city and our global needs and our partnerships there. Right? We could stop and look into the cities and we could see that there are children without fathers and, and there are girls that are being trafficked and Right? There are kids that face illiteracy issues, and there's, there's neglect all over. If we looked broadly into our world, we could say there are whole regions that have never heard the name of Jesus, and there are whole regions that struggle to find a meal on a day-in and day-out basis. Neglect is not hard to find. It's stopping to see it in the midst of a comfortable life that's the hard part. Sometimes 
Sometimes neglect is closer to home. You know, sometimes it's our kids looking at us saying, Mom, Dad, I need, a lo- I need more. They don't say it directly, but right, it comes through if we stop and listen. It's our spouse saying, Honey, I, I think we have some issues we need to work through. Can we go to get some counseling? Can we work on our marriage? There's neglect. Can we stop and be honest and take a look at it? Right? I think that's the first step that we see Nehemiah taking. Stopping and kind of making the observation and looking at the needs and saying, there's a real problem over there. Now what's fascinating is Nehemiah doesn't stay there. He he doesn't just stop and look at it and then look the other way and go back to a comfortable life. He goes a step further a step closer to courage, right? Here's what he does. I, I said this way in your notes. He makes a decision. He says, I, I'm gonna make the problem my problem, right? I'm gonna raise my hand. I'm gonna make the problem my problem, right? Not, not all problems can we own. But he's gonna say that, that one in Jerusalem, the fact that my people are in an insecure place and they are suffering disgrace and the walls of Jerusalem have been shattered and right now, if someone doesn't do something, these people will continue to languish. That problem is my problem now. I'm gonna take ownership of it. Watch, watch how it plays out in verse four. So his brother tells him this news. Here's what he says. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands and the decrees and the laws you gave your servant Moses. He goes on, he says, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey the commands, then even if your exiled people are at the furthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Nehemiah is not just going to own this problem from, from far away with his brain, with his mind. He's going to let it sink down into his heart. He's going to make the problem his problem. Right? He's going to sit down and make it emotional. He lets it kind of hit him in the heart. And he even fasts over it. Right? He's not out there. He's not the one suffering in Jerusalem. He's sitting in the king's palace, but he owns this problem at a deep level. And then he takes the problem and he brings it in front of his God. He doesn't try to fix it on his own strength or fix it in his own power. He takes it to God and says, God, you're the only one that can do anything about this. I'm sorry, look what he says, I'm sorry for what we've done. He confesses his sin, his part in this neglect. He kind of owns that he has some responsibility to play. 
He associates himself with the rest of his people who have disobeyed God and now have been scattered. And then what he does is he makes a call back to God's word. He says, God, remember what you said. You said, God, this is, I love this. God, you said that if we come back to you, you will regather us. Do you know that we can do that? Go back to God's word and say, God, you said, right? You said you love the orphan and the widow. You said you love the poor and the broken. You said you'd never leave me or forsake me. God, you said, right? As as I try to make a problem my problem, I need to lean into God's word and draw strength from him. I love this. He sees it, then he owns it at a deep level. He makes it his own. It's fascinating. I, I remember watching this happen in my life when I was a brand new believer. I, I maybe knew Jesus for a year or two. And um, a buddy of mine reached out to me and he said, Ryan, I, my life is like falling apart right now. He had kind of this crisis playing out in his life. And he said, what do I do? And I just started following Jesus and I was like, I have no idea how to help this guy. I love my friend, but I, I don't know how to solve this problem. And the church was smaller. You know, it was real kind of small and early in the, the life of the Bath campus. And I knew Jeff, and I remember just thinking, I don't know what to do. I'm going to call Pastor Jeff, you know. And I called Jeff that, that day, and, and I never will forget this. Jeff said, hey, you know what, buddy? Come over tonight. I'll put the kids to bed you take your friend, bring him over here. We'll dive into this thing together. Didn't even know my friend. Right? But, but he made my problem his problem. You know, he kind of owned it with me. That, that marked me. I saw it show up in real time in real life. I'll never forget it. Right? Make the problem my problem. What's fascinating, he, he catches it with his mind He lets it sink down into his heart, brings it before God, owns it emotionally, and then he doesn't stop there. He he takes another step in deeper, and he actually goes to the act of the will. I put it in your notes this way. He makes a decision to move past comfort and to choose courage. To move past comfort and to choose courage. So here's what he does. Right? He inserts himself into the midst of the problem. Right? He leaves his comfort zone. He puts himself in a situation where he can contribute to this neglect, and he owns it. Let me show you what he does. It's fascinating to see how it plays out. Nehemiah chapter 2 says, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was brought before him, here's Nehemiah doing his job as cupbearer. He says, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, 
If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, then let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Here's what Nehemiah does. He goes into the king, right? He has a great relationship with the king at this point, but the reality is that Nehemiah can still lose his job, his role, if asked the wrong way or at the wrong time or for the wrong thing. He could lose his life for asking for the wrong thing. These kings operated with with complete autonomy. They could do whatever they wanted. And if the king decided that this was inappropriate, Nehemiah was done. So Nehemiah risks his role and he risks his life and he says, King, will you let me go back to my people? Will you essentially let me leave here, leave my post, not be cupbearer to you and go back and live in Jerusalem and rebuild this thing? What a huge ask this was. This was a huge, right? He kind of put himself out there for the king. How much courage would it have taken to do that? Incredible, incredible. See, but here's what Nehemiah did. When he looked and said, I'm gonna own this problem. I'm not just gonna see it. I'm not just gonna feel bad about it like some Hallmark movie or whatever. I'm, I'm gonna own this and take action on it. He put himself at risk and he decided to leave his comfort zone and go address that neglect personally. I think this is what God would have us do. This is the decision where I'm looking at that kid in class and that kid who no one else is going to talk to. I have to process the decision. Will I remain comfortable and avoid him like everybody else does or avoid her like everybody else does or will I choose courage and go reach out to them? Leave my comfort zone, step across the room and make a connection. Why? Because if I don't do that, probably no one else is going to. Right? If I'm at work and I'm looking at that person who's clearly distraught, barely holding it together, I know they're struggling, I know their marriage is struggling, whatever it is. If somebody doesn't stop and reach out to them, who's going to? When the neglect shows up, I have to make a decision. I'm forced into a fork in the road. Will I look the other way and remain comfortable or will I choose courage and act on that? Right? What would this look like? Because sometimes it's something really simple. It, sometimes it's as simple as you know, turning the TV off and making a decision to, to walk across the street, knock on my neighbor's door and say, hey man, we've never met but I, I want to start to build a relationship because I know in the back of my mind this person has needs and they need to, a friend. How long does it take to put down the phone and and interact with my spouse when I know we need to work some things out? I was talking to my son about this the other day. He's starting to like come to the point in life where he can like have some pretty solid chores, you know, and and, uh, sometimes he doesn't want to do those, just like all of us. I said, you know what, buddy? I learned this lesson like two years ago, right? It's pretty late in the game for me, so you're going to be way ahead of me. And I said... But most things in my life that I really don't want to do take less than 10 minutes, right? Like 
most things, that, I, that if you just rip the Band-Aid on that, it takes less than 10 minutes. I, I said, most things actually take less than two minutes. How long did it take Nehemiah actually to go stand in front of the king and risk his life? Oh, it probably only took a few minutes, right? To rip the Band-Aid on the thing. How long does it take to walk across the room and introduce yourself to someone? Right, when, when somebody's here at church and they look lost in the sauce and the sea of people and you think that guy doesn't know what's going on, how long does it take to stop and say, hey man, you're here for the first time and want to say hi? Oh, it takes no time at all. Right, how long does it take to schedule marriage counseling, to put it on the calendar, to make that phone call? When we're looking at, at embracing that courageous decision I'm not talking about where the whole path leads, but, but to make that one call, oh, it only takes a minute or two. But that decision is life-changing. It really can be. I'll never forget, and I will always be thankful for the time when my friend made a decision to go out of his comfort zone, to embrace courage, to share Jesus with me. He didn't have to do that. He knew I was stubborn. He knew I would have called myself an atheist. And yet he saw me and knew I was in a place where I was open maybe to hearing something about Jesus potentially. Man, and he took the shot. And he had courage and he loved me enough to go there with me. Right? This is what Nehemiah did. He, he put himself out there. He chose courage. He chose to leave the comfort of the king's court to go rebuild the ruins, the neglect of the people that right, are languishing out there in no man's land. And what happens when someone does this? When someone chooses to go down the road of courage to abandon their comfort, I want us to know that, that it leaves a ripple. Right? There's a huge impact. Here's Here's how I said it in your notes. The courage of one brings comfort to many. Right? The courage of one brings comfort to many. Nehemiah's name actually means the Lord's comfort. The Lord's comfort. And Nehemiah is known for this because he's known as a man who left a place that was comfortable to bring comfort to many people. That one courageous decision, this one right here, made all the difference. When he chose courage, he would bring comfort to many people. And if we could read the rest of the book of Nehemiah, here's what we'd find out. You can read it and get it in detail, but here's the high-level version. They would go back and they would rebuild those walls. 52 days later, they had the, the whole thing, right, was safe and secure, even in the midst of opposition, it would cause and trigger a spiritual revival among those people. They were strengthened. They were encouraged. They were changed by one man's decision. Watch how this works. Nehemiah is not an isolated story of someone leaving their comfort zone to go face the needs and the neglect of other people. In fact, his story is a primer to the greater story of Jesus Christ who would do this on a cosmic level, who he would leave the ultimate comfort of heaven 
and he would step into the ultimate neglect of a broken and lost world. Jesus did this stuff. Jesus lived in the place of ultimate peace, ultimate comfort, in the presence of angels that worshiped him, and he willingly put human skin on, came and lived in this world, lived among sin and brokenness. Why? To bring comfort to many, to bring healing to the broken, to, to bring sight to the blind, right? to help open our eyes to the love of God. Nehemiah is not an isolated story of someone's sacrifice. It's a line of the faithful. It's how we live. Encapsulated, right, as the primary example in Jesus. You say, well, what do we do with this? How do we engage it then? Here's what I think we do. All right, we, we look at the story of Nehemiah and then we look at our own world and we, we stop and we say, all right, God, w- would you show me the neglect in my life? Right, would, you, would you show me where are the needs that are around me even today? I just want to stop and I want, I want to be open to the fact that there is neglect around me. Maybe it's at school, maybe it's at work, maybe it's in my neighborhood, maybe it's in my own home. Maybe it's having my eyes open by walking down the hallway to the discipleship wing and hearing about the needs of our city and our, our world. But I stop and I want to be open to that. That there's more to life than right, the, the comfort that I, I live in. And then I want to be open to when I see those needs to not just stop there but to be willing to make the problem my problem. Right, to, to press in towards a solution and be willing to be the solution if necessary. And then ultimately to to take courage. Is it possible that God has put someone in my life, in your life, right now that is in need? That God has planned and purposed and planted you right in the midst of that so that you could bring comfort to that person and their life could be changed because of it. Is that possible? Because here's the reality. For me personally, there are few decisions that I regret more than when I stay in my comfort zone and I, I move away from courage, personally. I've done a lot of things that I'm not proud of, but being a coward is one of the main ones. I'll never forget when I was, I was in elementary school, I was just a kid, I realized that. Well, I, had this, I had this buddy, this friend, and man, he came to school and he was dirty. And you, you don't see that stuff when you're a kid as much, do you? But I, I was starting to get the age that I knew. You know, he had tape on his glasses and he would wear the same things on, all the time. And I started to understand because kids would distance themselves from this kid but we sat by each other and we were friends, you know. And I'll never forget, we were between classes and we were changing, right, changing periods. And I was walking through the bathroom and I was with my friend and this other kid came in the room who was like one of the cool kids. Man, and, and point blank, this cool kid looked at me and he asked me, so arrogant, 
He said, are you friends with that kid? Pointing at this dirty kid with broken glasses, disheveled hair, you know. I looked back at this cool kid and I said, I said, no, I'm not friends with him. I hate that I made that decision. That, that I was in the midst of, of a decision to choose courage and say, yeah, I'm with this kid. Right? He's my friend. He's my buddy. I, I'll stand with him. That I wimped out. I chose comfort to, to stay in a place where I wouldn't face ridicule. I'm 35 years old, I still remember that. The decisions between comfort and courage, man, they stick with us. They last, and here's what I can guarantee you. If you think back to every courageous decision you've ever made, you will regret none of them. You're always glad, I'm always glad. Whenever I chose courage over comfort, I am glad I took that adventure. I never regret it. So what do we do with this? We look at the needs in our lives. Right, I'm a follower of Jesus. I, I want to respond to the comfort that Jesus has given me, the true comfort, and I want to enter into that neglect. Is there a place where I can act? If you're not yet a follower of Christ, maybe this is the first time you're hearing the story of Jesus I would ask you this, you're saying, I don't know anything about this whole God thing, man. I don't know what a cupbearer is. This is weird. I would say, just hear this. Would you be open to the fact that there is a God who left a place of great comfort and entered into a place of great suffering all because he loved you? Would you be open to that? Would you be open to the person of Jesus and looking at his life in a fresh way that he would come and live perfectly and die innocently all to pay for the neglect that you and I face for our sin? If you've never taken a hard look at who Jesus is, would you do that? It starts there. Would you make a decision to follow Christ or at least to investigate him to the point where you would know enough to follow him. And for the rest of us, we'd be open to acting, facing the crossroads, comfort and courage. And will I embrace courage? Will I choose that adventure? I'm gonna have the band come out. And I would love for us to stop and think and pray. And even as we've been talking for a while, if there's something that came to mind, a person, a need, would you hear that as God's voice speaking to you today? It's not a coincidence. It's not random. God may be putting you there for that very purpose. Let's pray together. Father, we say thank you. Lord, thank you that you loved us enough to come and leave your comfort zone and be in the midst of our pain, Jesus. And Lord, I ask that you would give us courage to be like you, to follow your example, and to embrace the people around us who are in need and are in neglect. God, would you open our eyes to the needs all around us, 
Would you open our hearts to make the problem my problem? And then would you, God, would you give us the courage to, to choose it, to act, and to the, be the people that we long to be, that you made us to be. Speak to us, God, even today. It's in your name we pray, Jesus.